You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. Good morning. I'm Sheila. I am uh, excited to be here with you today, uh, even if it's virtually once again, how fun it is to be able to um, open the word together with you. Well, Friday was an interesting day, uh, wasn't it? Well, for any of us who use Rogers or have everything bundled in Rogers like the Thompsons do, uh, and it was the end of an interesting week for me. Bert and I spent the holiday weekend in New York City with our oldest son and his wife, and uh, returning home, I tested positive for COVID, so I've joined the ranks finally. Um, so I slept the le- week away, literally. I slept Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Um, on Wednesday, I told Pastor Richard, knowing that I was supposed to be preaching today, I said, you know, I'm sure that by Friday, by Friday, I'll be feeling well enough to write a sermon. And well, you know what happened Friday. I did not realize how dependent on the internet I am to... Um, type out my sermon. And uh, from copying and pasting Bible verses instead of typing them word for word, or even doing some research and just finding the things I want to, you know, put into my sermon. So I had to go into a box and dig out this thing. This is called the Strong's Exhaustive, exhausting, it really is, exhaustive concordance of the Bible. I bought this in 1980. And um, what you do with it is instead of typing a word into a search, you actually look and um, every word that's recorded in the Bible is in here. Like, so you take a word, you want the word burden, that's one. And you open it up to the word burden, like a dictionary alphabetical order. And it shows you every time in the Bible that word is used. It's a big, exhaustive book. One problem looking for things, verses that I wanted to put into my sermon is that it's in this old relic here is in King James Version. So I had to dig in the brain thinking, how was that written in King James? Anyway, uh, that's how I started my sermon on Friday. So um, Rich said, ah, Richard said to me, even if you don't get to prepare. You can just go sit in that chair. I know you can and talk about relationships. And I said, yeah. And I'd probably talk for about an hour. Right. So um, here we are. And I do, the truth is I do have a lot to say about relationships and about devotion to relationships. Bert, uh, Bert, no, the other guy, Richard, he started this series on Sunday, this past Sunday. And um, he just used the word devoted and he broke down to us what it means to be devoted to something, to have our life revolve and, and uh, that be the center of us. And so now as we go through the different parts of the passage that we're using from the book of Acts, we're going to look at the things that the early church devoted themselves to. And today we're going to talk about relationships. A couple, um, a couple pop-up services ago, our theme for our pop-up services has been moving forward, what it looks like for us as a church in the weeks, months, years ahead. And Bert did a two-part series, uh, sermon, not series. Bert did a two-part sermon. And uh, his two parts were authentic relationships and practical ministry, authentic relationship, and practical ministry. So I really am excited to get to talk about relationships today. So we're basing our summer series, Ecclesia, on Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47. So let's go ahead and read. So 
Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And to all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Beginning in Acts chapter 1 and all through the book of Acts, the believers were together, devoted to the word to hearing it, to learning it, to doing it, to fellowship, and fellowship just being fellows in the same ship, that corny old church joke. Mm-hmm. Um, communion, prayer, practically meeting one another's needs, meals together, big groups, small groups, temple homes. They were devoted to relationships. A couple of weeks ago in our Unstoppable series, there was this great quote You know, I'm just going to stop here for a second because my technical guy actually has the wrong sermon up. So I'm going to give him a minute to find the right sermon. So, um, and you know it's live because we're not going to go back and correct and start again. So a couple weeks ago, Richard (laughs) was uh, teaching and here's what he said. Just assume. This great teacher, Richard Kidger, just assume when you read the book of Acts that things are done together. And isn't that what we see? That in the book of Acts, whether it's food and fellowship, whether it's corporately meeting needs, whether it's prayer or studying the word, the people of God were together with one another. So a couple of weeks ago, I got a phone call from one of my dearest friends, like seriously decades, lifelong friends. She had just finished reading the book At Your Best by Carrie Newhoff. The subtitle of the book is How to Get Time, Energy, and Priorities Working in Your Favor. She wanted to talk to me about our relationship, but we'll come back to that later. Well, you might wonder about a book that sounds like it's a time management book. What on earth it has to do with today's message devoted to relationship? Chapter nine of Carrie's book focuses on people. That is the people that you do life with. Carrie draws on the research of a guy A man named Robin Dunbar, he was, let me get this right, the former director of the Institute of Cognitive and Evolutionary Anthropology and the Department of Experimental Psychology at Oxford. I think he's about 75 now. And included in his studies and his publications are two books. The one book is um, published in 2010 is called How Many Friends Does One Person Need? The book published just a year ago, 2021, Friends, Understanding Our Most Important Relationships. This man has actually spent his life studying the history and the psychology of how we as humans relate to one another and our deepest and dearest friendships. 
So, from Carrie's book, exactly how many relationships do you think one person can have? British anthropologist and evolutionary psychologist Robert Dunbar Robin Dunbar said the maximum number of meaningful personal relationships most humans can cultivate is much smaller than you might assume. Dunbar argued that the number of relationships we can have is not just a matter of preference or willingness. He said your limits are cognitive. They're hardwired. How many relationships do you think that you can have? Well, Dunbar's conclusion about the capacity for human relationships springs from the way the brain developed from anthropology, biology, human history, dating back to ancient Greece and Rome. Dunbar broke down the limits of meaningful human relationships into a series of concentric circles. And he has this thing called Dunbar's number. Take a look at it. You and me can only keep track of about 1,500, uh, 1,500. I'll get back to the 1,500 because that's how many um, Facebook friends you probably have. 150 meaningful relationships. So in these concentric circles, there's usually two that are special. Maybe it's a spouse, a best friend, five that are close, 15 good. You can see the breakdown there. Dunbar explains, he says, the innermost circle, and he actually puts 1.5 on that. Mm -hmm. The most intimate, I'm not sure how I have one and a half friends, but we'll we'll leave it at that. Um, The innermost layer of 1.5, the most uh, intimate, clearly has to do with your romantic relationships or your best friends. The next layer, the five, is your shoulders-to-cry-on kind of friend. It's um, a small group of people willing to provide you unlimited emotional, physical, even financial advice, financial help and advice. They're the ones who will drop everything to support us when our world falls apart, which reminds me of a country song. Um, I used to say everything in the world could be understood, explained, or seen in one country song or another. For those of you who haven't known me all the years of my life. So, um, here's a country song that came to mind and I've been singing in the last day. I will not sing it for you. You don't have to worry. (laughs) You find out who your friends are. Somebody's going to drop everything, run out and crank up their car, hit the gas, get there fast, never stop and think what's in it for me or it's way too far. They just show on up with their big old heart. You find out who your friends are. You know, that's the five or the three to five, or that inner circle of friends. Back to Dunbar's number, back to Dunbar's diagram. Uh, The 15 layer includes the previous five, and um, they're also your main social companions. They provide context for fun times. They might be the people you go to the pub or to a restaurant with. They're the people you trust to babysit your kids. They're kind of your inner circle. You're going to invite them for a quiet dinner around the dining room table or an evening out at the theater. That's your 15. Then you're the next layer up, your 50. They're your friends. It's your big weekend backyard barbecue kind of friends. Um, You know them, you know their kids' names, you know them. And finally, it's your 150. 
And he says, you can have meaningful relationships with up to 150 people. And these are more your one-in-a-lifetime friends. In fact, he says weddings, bar mitzvahs, and funerals, they'll be, they'll be the ones who are there. So Carrie says this, in summarizing this, Carrie Newhoff says, it appears that you and I are designed to process only a limited number of meaningful relationships, which has some pretty staggering implications for how we live these days. The struggle then is between design and desire. You were designed to handle between three and 150 in a meaningful way. Carrie Newhoff from At Your Best. Those things that we call friends on Facebook or um, one of my peeves. Um, there's a podcast I really like to listen to, really like to listen to, enjoy it so much. But the podcast host always calls me her friend. Well, if I walked into her house, she wouldn't know my name. She wouldn't know my kids' names. She wouldn't know I was married to. She'd say, and who on earth are you? So that word friend, that thing of relationships really when we look, um, it's a little overused. How many friends do you have on Facebook? I went actually yesterday to my Facebook page and looked, um, and I'm not going to tell you because they're not really all my friends. So all this 20 and 21st century uh, psychology, anthropology couldn't help but get me thinking about Jesus his concentric circles, how his diagram would be drawn. You know, Jesus, he had his 70. There was a time in the book of Luke where um, it says the Lord appointed 72 and sent them to go ahead of him. And uh, they were going to go into all the towns and the places that he was going to go. In other words, these people were actually traveling with Jesus, a group of 70. And then there were the 12. Of course, actually, there was first the 12 plus. Because in another spot in Luke, he says, he talks about Jesus um, with the apostles, the 12 who were with him, and also some women, Mary, Joanna, Susanna, and others who were providing for him. Then there was the 12. You know, Matthew, Matthew, and you know, um, I was going to go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You can tell I have just a bit of that COVID fog, so um, bear with me. The apostles, Peter, James, John, and a couple of guys named Judas, and uh, um, Bartholomew, and yes, there was a Matthew in there. That 12. And then there was his inner circle, the three. So Peter, James, and John, the ones that at some pretty significant times in his life, like when he was transfigured, when he went up on the mountain and uh, he, you know, he glowed in the robes and the voice of God could be heard. He took three with him, Peter, James, and John. And then that final light in Gethsemane, he, all the 12 were with him, but he asked those three to come and be a little closer to him. And finally, if you read between the lines in the book of John, um, John himself, though he never like says, hey, I was really the guy's best friend. Mm -hmm. He sure implies a lot of things if you read between the lines. Um, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved was leaning on his breast. 
And uh, Gina, uh, Peter turned to Jesus and was asking him some questions about the that one disciple whom, G- whom Jesus loved. And um, he concludes by saying something about this disciple. This is the one who's writing these things. So um, he doesn't go, hey, I was the guy's best friend, but <laughs> you can read that for what it was. So Jesus, even Jesus had his concentric circles. He had his 70 and his 12 plus and then the 12 and the three and perhaps the one who he really was the closest to today because we could talk about so many things about relationships. We could talk about so many different parts as we look at um, the book of Acts and that portion from Acts chapter two. But I just want to look at that little circle, you know, the three to five. Um, Yeah, let's focus on that. The three to five back to the phone call from my dear friend a few weeks ago. Um, because she had finished reading Carrie's book, not once, but twice and said, uh, you know, I'm really convicted because the friends who I'm the closest with, it's pretty easy to just let the commitment to those relationships just ride along. And though when we get together, we have great talks. And when we need one another, we know we're as close as the phone because we don't live in the same city. Um, What does it look like for us as 60-year-old women looking ahead to really be more devoted to our relationships, not just her and I, but even determining who that little circle is for each one of us as individuals. Um, It's easy to let weeks go past and months go past and and not give that time and devotion to those life-giving relationships. So we were talking, what does it mean to be devoted to a relationship? And I just threw out some words. I thought, well, it requires some commitment and uh, some dedication. That kind of sounds the same, doesn't it? Commitment, dedication. Um, it's going to take some work. What? She's my friend. You mean it's going to take work? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to take time and work. Oh, yeah. Time. And um, and some risk. You know, to go deep with individuals, you got to let some walls down and, hey, be vulnerable. So commitment and dedication and time and work and risk and vulnerability. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, well, what do I look for in a relationship? What are the things? What am what what in in my dearest, closest, those three to five close core relationships, what are the things that are life-giving to me? And there is many, but I've got four words for you today. Insight, encouragement, compassion and companionship. Uh, Okay, a little sidetrack, because um, I guess some of you know I homeschooled my kids when they were in elementary school, and I love math. And there's one part of math that I absolutely, absolutely love, and that's fractions, because fractions are so fun. There's so many things you can do with fractions, and there's so many rules, and when you apply the rules, the right things happen, and you got to know... have to know multiples and all kinds of uh, cool things. And so I love fractions, adding them, subtracting them, multiplying them, dividing them. And one word that's attached to um, fractions is the word reciprocal. And you know, a reciprocal fraction is when you just take that fraction and you kind of flip it upside down. This is simplistic, right? Um, But 
it might be the threes on top of the four and the reciprocal is when the four is on top of the three. And isn't that relationships? You know, sometimes it's one pouring that insight, encouragement and companionship, maybe more into the other person than the other is, but the friendship, the relationship is reciprocal. It's the one another's of the New Testament. It's not one-sided, but it's that life-giving, life-breathing interaction with one another. So let's talk about insight. I was just thinking about the word insight, and uh, I just thought, hmm, Insight is to have a friend, to have some friends who know me well enough to see into me, who know me well enough to see into me. Uh, Of course, because I just do, we're going to do a Tim Keller quote. And here's a favorite. To be loved, but not known is comforting, but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. You know what that means, don't you? That fear that we all have, that if somebody really knew me, they'd no longer love me, they'd reject me. I, that, might, that might be up there with the greatest fears in the human heart, right up there with the dentist, I don't know. But to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. Back to Tim. To be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, you know, pretense, trying to be somebody that you're not in front of somebody to impress them. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness. I don't have to prove that I am somebody that I'm not. And it fortifies us, you know, fortifies strength, deep, deep strength for any difficulty life can throw at us. So I need friends and I need to be a friend with insight. I need to know and see into the heart of my friend, and I need my friends to know and see into my heart. Proverbs says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. I need that. I need someone who sees in me and can speak the truth in love to me. Ephesians says this, let no corrupting talk, or no American standard calls it unwholesome word, but let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Unwholesome, unwholesome talk, unwholesome words. You think, oh, that's saying bad words to somebody. Well, actually, the word unwholesome, it means that that thing isn't characterized by or conducive to the health and well-being, moral well-being of another person. The words we speak are to be conducive to the health and well-being of someone. In other words, we need to speak the truth to one another. And in our most intimate circles, we need that. We need someone who sees into us and who can speak the truth to us. My next word was the word encouragement. And uh, I just said this, encouragement, a friend who infuses me with courage. Now, um, I like tea. And uh, I like my tea strong. So when I take that tea bag and I add it to that boiling or near boiling water, infuse is a word that describes tea because as that bag or your leaves are in there, you can watch 
the the um the flavor and the color and all the goodness of that tea just merge into that water. And that's what encouragement does for me. It takes me from a place, maybe not just where I'm afraid, though maybe I'm afraid, maybe I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm about to stumble and where the words of another even as it says in Hebrews, encourage one another every day. The words of another can seep into me like the tea from that bag seeps into that hot water. And it gives me the courage and the strength to walk through. It doesn't make things go away, but it gives me the courage and the strength to walk through and to live through the, maybe the tougher things in life, not flattery, I don't need to be flattered. I need someone who knows me well enough that can speak to those deep areas of my life. Well, compassion is my next word. Compassion, calm and passion means to suffer with. When my friend, when me as a friend, because remember we're doing some math here, the reciprocal numbers, when my friend or when me towards a good friend shows compassion, it means we've stepped alongside and in that person's pain or suffering or discouragement, we're actually suffering together. Um, the Bible, the words of Jesus today we read was Jesus talked about come to him and, um, and he'll make our burdens, um, our yoke easy or his yoke is easy and his burdens light. Um, and you know, uh, later on, Paul writes that we're to bear one another's burdens. So Jesus has come to him because he's going to make the yoke easy and the burden light. And Paul says, actually, one of the ways that burden is lifted is that you're not walking alone. You're bearing one another's burdens. And that scripture about bearing one another's burdens, it says, and so fulfill the law of Christ. In, in other words, the words, the teaching of Christ is actually fulfilled, not just when Jesus somehow uh, yeah, sometimes he lifts the burdens of our heart, but he usually and often and most times does it through the compassion, the walking with of another person. Be kind to one another, compassionate, it says in Ephesians, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you, compassionate, suffering with, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. We can do that. We can suffer with someone because we know that one has suffered with us, that his kindness has been extended to us. We're not greater than, we actually wear the same shoes. We're walking in one another's shoes and we are compassionate and extending that kindness to one another. Finally, I need a companion. Um, I I got lost in the book of Proverbs, so I'm going to just fire off a few Proverbs-related relational scriptures to you, but you could spend a year there. Um, companion, literally, it means um, from the Latin root, one who breaks bread with another. You know, there was quite a significance throughout history and in many cultures about breaking bread with one another and about sharing meals, about the intimacy of opening your home and your heart and your life to share your a meal with someone else. There was a deepness to that companionship with bread together, breaking bread together. Um, so Proverbs, a man of many companions comes to ruin, 
But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That sticks closer than is the word cleave. It's translated other places like what a man is supposed to do with his wife. Cleave to her and a a wife to her husband. That's the closeness of a a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Uh, A friend loves at all times. A brother is born for adversity. You know, your dearest friends are not born for just the, the good times and the party times and the um, let's go to the neighborhood pub time, but a friend is born for adversity. Those relationships that are there in those times. I like this one. Well, not really. I'm making that up. Iron sharpens iron as one man sharpens another. You know, in our companionship, sometimes there's that rubbing and that grating that actually rubs off like, um, like that, uh, like iron, it rubs off the sharp parts of us and the unsightly parts of us. And it might hurt, but it's how our lives, our intimate relationships strengthen us. Finally, um, note that was the finally. So how do we close? How do we draw close to one another with commitment and dedication, with some work, with looking at one another and say, you are part of my, who identify those people. Who are those that not the 150, not the 1500, not even the one, the one's usually pretty obvious, but that tight group who's going to be those close, supportive companions to you. It's going to take work, time, risk, vulnerability. And how can we do this? As we close here today, we can do this because the greatest friend loved us first. What did, what did, uh, I think first John wrote to, in the book of first John, John wrote to us this. We love because he first loved us. This is my commandment. Jesus spoke his final night, the last night of dinner with his dear, dear friends. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he goes, how did he love them? Well, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. A servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I've heard from my father. I've made known to you. Jesus, the greatest friend, took us in, put his arm around us, broke bread with us shared his life with us, showed us the way to the Father, the greatest friend. We can love because he first loved us. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.